0: I'd like you to open up to two places in your Bibles if you can, Um, I'm sure you can manage. Uh, One is Jonah 1, it's page 1363, 1363, Jonah chapter 1, and we're also going to open, it'd be good to get your finger in it, Hebrews chapter 12, page 1756. I want to read both up front, help us just set the scene for where we're going today. All right. Jonah chapter 1, we'll read the first 10 verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? Was it your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. In Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to pick up from verse 5. And you have you forgotten the exhortation? Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it this book this this character this amazing interesting complex flawed character jonah speaks to us all in different ways i think it speaks to anyone here who maybe has been wrestling with the question of whether you should even become a follower of jesus become a disciple of Jesus Christ and his Jonah is a man who's caught in that it seems in that point of decision whether he's going to follow God's call I actually think he's a believer of course so we're taking him as an analogy for those of you who may be there I think some of us have been on the run for a while now he also speaks to a much larger group of us here who might find yourself in a situation it's going to say in the boat but that's going to be a terrible pun. So let's say in the situation of being a backslider where you've known what God wants of you. You've known what he's calling you to do, what discipleship looks like in terms of daily obedience, in terms of long-term traje- trajectory of where you're being called to go and, and, and what obedience looks like in your life. But maybe you've been on the run from God. I think Jonah is in that category. He's a man who is... He's a backslider. He, he belongs to the people of God, no, no question about that. It's there in his confession, as we've read. But he's been on the run. He's been in disobedience. He's been harboring evil thoughts, evil contemplations, and he's been running away from God. And I think we were chatting about this in our life group this week, about the things that um, cause us to be disobedient to God and we we're thinking through some of these excuses and these are the ones we came up with things like this that I'll do it later how often do we postpone and delay obedience to Jesus we think we have time to sort things out later we say it's too costly you know, there is a price there's always a price to obeying Christ to following him and if you've been somebody who's been weighing the cost and torn with the cost then this speaks to you I think we question whether we've heard from God. Um, and of course, I understand that. If you're talking about the way that God's Spirit speaks to us in terms of guidance and so on, but when he's spoken to us through the Scriptures, we shouldn't have these sort of doubts and wranglings and questions and, and uncertainties. Does he does He really, you know, is he really clear about whether it's okay to date a non-Christian or not? Is it really that clear in the Bible? You know, we we kind of wrestle with these things don't we is it really is it really not okay for me to indulge that thing a little bit we say I'm oh, not sure if we really heard God that clearly we rationalize and maybe we say we have too much responsibility to <laughs> obey what God has put on our hearts you know or we say someone else is going to be better suited to it that's kind of Jonah's place and he just wasn't feeling it he just didn't want to go so here we are we're we're confronted with this amazing, honest portrayal of a backslider, somebody who's maybe walked with God, been used by God, and is now running in the opposite direction. God is going to uh, speak to you today if you're in that position, because I am absolutely certain of it. You need to hear what Jonah's going to say to you today. Anyone of us who wants to serve God as well, uh, who's maybe not struggling with that kind of whole thing of being in a backslided position, but you've, you've been wanting to serve God, um, this, this book stands as a warning to us all, doesn't it? I think there's been many people who've read the book of Jonah, and because of his example and the honesty of the scriptures and telling us uh, the kind of excuses we make and the evil thoughts we harbor in our hearts, they've said, I can't be like that guy. And so they've made a decision to follow Christ. I'm quite sure that some of us are going to be spoken to in that way as we go through this book. And, you know, my passion for us as a people, for us as a church, is that we're going to be a disciple making church. But, you know, the kinds of disciples you make, we want to be the kind of people who obey God wholeheartedly. Who, when He says go, you go. When He feels the call to um, be a missionary in your context here in London, or maybe some of you are going to be sent overseas, some of you are going to go and plant churches in other parts of the country you're not going to hesitate. You're not going to turn your back. You're going to say yes. It, not that there's going to be uh, an ease to it necessarily all of the time, but your mind's already been made up because you've, you've, you know the book of journey. You know what God does with people when they run away. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. So even if maybe you're not in that position where you're like, oh, I just, my conscience is clear today, this is stuff is like stuff to get in, in the back of your head, store away. And trust that God's going to use it to fuel right decision-making, discipleship as we move forward. And here's what we're we're thinking about today. I want us to talk about God's discipline and your response. God's discipline, your response. The book shows us very clearly that God was disciplining this man, his servant. It says, verse 4, the Lord held a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. God intervened dynamically. So here's my question for you. What happens when a Christian turns their back on God in terms of obedience, when they start rebelling against God, when they are saying no to him, or when they're ruled by fear, and that fear controls them more than the fear of God, which would call for certain actions, or when they fail to love, like Jonah does, I mean, one of his great problems when you read this book is his failure of love. He just doesn't care about Nineveh. What happens when we're in that position? And it doesn't bring about the kind of obedience that God wants. Well, at first, maybe nothing happens. We saw how Jonah just keeps running, right? He runs to Joppa, he jumps on a boat, and in it all, he just has this ease. There's absolutely nothing going wrong for him for probably a few hundred miles, and maybe that's been you. You've been kind of on the run a little bit from God, and you think things are going fine. Nothing's broken. I'm not unhappy. My situation isn't crumbling or falling apart. And you think, well, this is fine. Clearly, God's with me. His favor's behind me, even though your conscience tells you otherwise. Now, listen, here's what Michael Eaton says about this. He says, well, so you get the impression that the boat was easy to find, easy to hire. It's easy to become a rebel against God's will. And we might want to ask, why does God let it be so easy to become a rebel? I answer, because God wants willing, voluntary obedience. God gives you rope, as we were saying last week, because he, uh, he wants to give you the opportunity to come back willingly. If that's you, you need to listen up, because look what happens next. When a Christian persists in disobedience against God, at some point, God says, enough. And he begins to discipline that Christian. That's what that passage in Hebrews 12 is all about. He begins to make situations, circumstances so difficult for you that your attention is back on him. I want to describe for you what God's discipline is like. And I want you to understand it in four ways. And the first is this. God's discipline, and it's important to underline this, is genuinely dangerous. And I say that because I think that the idea that God could be dangerous or could in any way want to cause us anything that looks like or feels like or resembles harm is an idea that's kind of been purged from Christian understanding and vocabulary in Western Christianity. But here in Hebrews 12, he tells us about Esau. He says a bit further down, verse 17, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau experienced irreversible loss because of his disobedience to God. So I want you to understand, yeah, when we talk about God's discipline, we're thinking in terms of the analogy of a, of a parent and a child. That's the language that's used, father and son. But it's not like the, the kind of empty threats that so many parents throw around. You know, when, you know, when you're a parent, you'll, you'll, you'll see how difficult it is to be consistent with the things that you threaten your child with. So, because it, sometimes it just takes too much effort. You say, you do that one more time, and I'll smack you. They do it again. You're like, if you do it again, I will smack you. And it's just empty, empty threats. And if you keep doing that children, they pretty much quickly learn you're never going to smack them. And that's bad parenting. But even a good parent right, who follows through on the things that they're going to they're do, the, the disciplines, whether it's a naughty step or smacking or taking away their allowance or disowning them, maybe they don't do that. But you know, whatever it is they're going to do, generally speaking, even a good parent, they're, they're not wanting to cause what you might think of as a real and lasting harm to their child. On the contrary, there's always, it's it's a measured, it should be in good parenting, a measured rebuke or reprimand, right? But one of the things I find interesting and where the, it's a little bit different when God in terms of God's parenting towards us is that when you see God disciplining people in the Bible, you see real, irreversible, lasting harm being done to people sometimes. That's usually when they pushed it to a real extreme, okay? I'm not talking about just, you know, you, you cross a line, boom, he like strikes you with lightning or something like that. I'm not talking about that, and I want to get those ideas out of our head. But just think about this, for example, how Paul said that there was a thorn in his side, and he prayed three times to Jesus that God would that he'd remove it. And Jesus said that he was leaving it there because his power was made sufficient in weakness. Jesus wanted Paul to walk with a limp, as it were. Same thing you going see going on with Jacob when he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. Jacob was a, a really dodgy character back in Genesis. He's a, he's a bit of a crook. He's, he definitely cheated at Esau. And it's a real kind of ambiguous. Again, just one of these guys, you look at him and you think, you know, we're not really sure we should, you know, you don't really want to just take the moralistic approach to the Bible and just imitate these guys because they did some pretty dodgy things. But God deals with Jacob when he, when he wrestles all night with the angel and he leaves him with a limp so that for the rest of his life, he walks with this kind of Limp, it's permanent, lasting harm. To always remember him, remind him of the God he serves. We mentioned Esau. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. There they are, they lie to God, they try and lie to the church, and they lie to the Holy Spirit. They say, this is all our money, have it all. And really they've siphoned off a good chunk of it. And it's not the fact that they kept some of their money, that's not the problem. The problem is that they thought they could lie to God and get away with it. And uh, you know how that story ends. Real and lasting harm is an understatement, right? So what I'm trying to say to you is that one of the characteristics of God's discipline is that it is, it is genuinely dangerous. And I think it's very important for Christians to have this in their understanding, in their theology about who God is. We are meant to live with a sense of the fear of God. Yeah. It's not that it makes us scared people, but that it does factor in constantly into what it means to be a wise, loving disciple of Jesus Christ. That's one thing. It's genuinely dangerous. Here's another. The thing about God's discipline is that it is not the same as punishment. I want to really take a massive marker and underline this one for you. Because Jonah belonged to the family of God. We belong to the family of God if you are a Christian here today. And if that's true of you, you know that God has dealt with your sin when he punished Jesus on the cross. What kind of a just judge would he be if he then punished you again for the same sins? This is why when the New Testament talks about Christians being wayward and backsliding and things like this, it doesn't use the language of punishment. It uses a language, as we saw in Hebrews 12, of discipline, chastisement. And there is a huge difference. Discipline or chastisement is not designed as a kind of just retribution for your wrong. That's already been done. It's intent, it's goal, is something completely different. We need to constantly distinguish between God as as judge, pouring out his anger upon Jesus at the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to understand that all the anger that should have been upon you and me has instead been absorbed by Christ on the cross. He, Like a lightning rod on a tall building, took the full brunt of God's striking force so that you would not have to. But on the other hand, if you're God's child, he is your father. This is why in Hebrews 12, it says in verse 7, it's for discipline you have to endure God is treating you as sons. Discipline is not the same as punishment. Here's a third thing I want you to understand about discipline. Discipline is proof of God's love for you. Parents who don't discipline their children are bad parents. Parents who fail to set boundaries and follow through on them I'm even stronger, I say they're abusive parents. It says here in Hebrews 12, God's treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, he says, then your illegitimate children are not sons. A parent who doesn't endure the pain, the difficulty, the emotional anguish, and in some ways take the cost upon themselves by inflicting discipline on their children, doesn't love their child enough maybe they're just confused but they're treating them like they're someone else's child and so we understand when we experience the lash of God's discipline that it is the proof that he loves us as a father if you never experience the pain of God's discipline it's either because you're living a really great life or because you're not part of the family It's proof of his love. Here's a fourth thing. God's discipline is designed to set you back on the right path. I'm trying to say to you that God is interested in the ends of what he's seeking to accomplish in you. And he particularly wants to draw you back to him. So Jonah, here he was. He's allowed to wander and wander and wander. And then a point comes where God forcibly returns him back to dry land through the most unlikely means. Jonah ran out of leash. He ran out of rope. He was forced by God's hand to bring him back to where God wanted him to be. So God cared about the end that he had in mind for Jonah, and he does for you as well. He cares about our character. He cares about our obedience. He cares about our holiness. He cares about preparing you for eternity. These are the things that are on God's mind. So yeah, he can... Inflicts some short term hurt, pain, that is designed to bring you to repentance, and you understand that his greater purpose that he has in mind justifies the means. So I says in Hebrews twelve again, verse ten, he says, that our parents disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. God's highest purpose for you. You ever wrestle with that question? What does God want from my life? His highest purpose for you, friend, is to make you holy. He'll do any and everything to make that happen. I think sometimes God moves us through the whisperings of his love and the wooing of his call. You see his grace being poured out upon people in the Bible. How Jesus so graciously freed the woman who'd been caught in adultery. And then just tells her to go away and sin no more. She didn't need to experience discipline. She was broken already. Sometimes God meets us like that. He comforts the afflicted. But at other times, he does the opposite. He afflicts you because you're too comfortable. And you've been running. And you need to get back and repent. Now, can we come back into Jonah chapter 1? I want you to think about your response to God. What do you do when you sense God is after you? And here we've got three different kind of responses as we, as we move through these verses. It begins with what I've called desperation without knowledge. So verse 5, it says, Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid... And each cried out to his God. What does it take to make a sailor fear? Sailors all through history have been the most burly, aggressive, strong, you know, truly machismo men on, on, the, on the planet, right? To be a sailor is to deny yourself to be away from earthly comforts for months on end to be exposed to the elements. These are men who are, who are so hardened by the experiences of life that you know, they, they, they begin to less resemble men than others. So here they are, and they're afraid. Have you ever been on one of those long-haul t- flights when the turbulence hits the plane and the thing starts to shake up and down? And Usually, it's pretty harmless. Occasionally, you can be flung around and injured. What would you do if the captain came onto the tannoy and says, Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Please would everybody pray to whatever God they believe in, (laughs) as we are experiencing turbulence. These guys have reached the point where they they, they know they are utterly desperate. There's nothing they can do to save their own lives. The boat is being tossed around like a cork in the sea they have no control over the situation. I think, you know, when you're in that kind of position, your confidence lies in your ability, your intelligence, your experience. I know that if I move the sail and trim it that way and I pull that rope, then things are going to be okay. But in a situation like this, you're totally out of control. And these men are deeply, deeply fearful of what's going on. I find that interesting. I find it interesting that God knows our pressure points. If he can get through hardened sailors, get through to them, then don't you think that God knows where to touch you to wake you up? He does. And their fear in their desperation makes them religious. They all start crying out to their gods. Friend, it is far better that you get religion before it's too late. By that, I don't mean any old religion. I mean you come to know Jesus. And they start throwing out the cargo. They, you know, This is the whole purpose for which they've taken this trip. It probably cost them the equivalent of thousands and thousands of pounds. You don't embark on, on sailing trips for no purpose. It's costly. But they start throwing it all out to save the boat. And if I may, I, I kind of see in this something of an allegory of what it's like when people feel the pressure of needing to get right with God but without the knowledge of how. On the one hand, you can praise them for their seriousness, throwing out whatever they can. And it's a picture to me of of people who, in their desperation to have their conscience healed, to experience acceptance by God, will do all kinds of radical things in order to get In order to really to save themselves, you ever heard of how Martin Luther? What happened before he, before he, in the run up to the Reformation? He had a tormented conscience. He was a monk who was very extreme in his devotion to God. So extreme that this German monk had traveled to Rome, he'd, he'd gone through all the kind of processes that, that, were, that were laid out for people in terms of pilgrimages and, and prayers. He'd, been, he'd climbed up the steps of St. Peter's Basilica, kissing every step and repeating the prayers that he was supposed to pray. And still, he felt no ease from his, in his conscience. There's a picture there for us of what it's like when people, you know, they try this thing or that thing. Or they cut away this activity or that activity in order to try, try, try by any means possible to ease their own conscience, but nothing seems to solve it. So, on the one hand, you have this it's great that they're serious about the situation, but it's a picture of so many people desperate without knowledge. And the one thing they needed to do was get that man out of the boat. And it seems to me to be such a picture of exactly what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not call you to deal with just particular sins in your life. He calls you to come and die. To uproot the deepest part of your idolatry, which is self-worship. Living for yourself. To become a Christian is to surrender lordship of your own life and to say Jesus is Lord. We have in this a picture of these sailors tossing out all the cargo except the one piece of cargo that needed to go. God doesn't want you just to deal with particular sins in your life. He wants you to deal with sin, the root sickness, self-lordship and rebellion. So, we have this picture of des- this response of desperation without knowledge. Is that you? Have you been floundering and panicking and unsure how to get your conscience right before God? Jesus tells you the only way that you can know God in peace and be reconciled to Him is through the cross. To give up your rights, to give up your self rule and autonomy and lordship over yourself. To uproot sin itself and say, God, forgive me for running from you. Save me. The second response we see is that of Jonah and it's denial with knowledge. So he comes, it says in that same verse, verse 5, after they've held the cargo into the ship to lighten, it says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. This is really, really bizarre. I mean, that boat is being thrown around in extraordinary violence. There is an incredible storm going around it and Joan is asleep in the bottom of the boat. How does a man do that? I'm going to rule out one thing. I don't think it's just seasickness. It could, have been. it could have been just passed out with vomit all over him, just like totally. I don't think it's that. I think, actually, when you think about it, it's not that strange for a few reasons. The first is this, because of how exhausting it is to maintain disobedience against God. it's exhausting to your conscience, your emotional life, it takes its toll physically, your spirit is troubled. and if you're a person who's found yourself recognizing that there is something malign, something misplaced something wrong in the depths of your heart maybe you've been experiencing ongoing um, anxieties and depression or this exhaustion and inability to um, have peace and joy in day-to-day life please don't mishear me I'm not saying that those two things always go together but what I am saying is that when you are walking in deliberate ongoing rebellion against God that way is going to be hard and tiring. So Jonah's exhausted. He's been running hard in the wrong direction, and he's not—he doesn't have that lightness of spirit, that energy. He is passed out, unconscious, asleep. It's also not strange because of our tendency. And please, please recognize this is true of all of us: our tendency towards escapism when you know the one thing you need to deal with, but don't do it. And there he is, in the bottom of the boat, denying his problems by being asleep. I mean, for some of you, this is actually a literal thing you do. You sleep away the hours because you do not want to face the reality of what's going on in your life. The way that God's prompting you and prodding you, come back to me. And hiding and sleeping. Or escaping in some other way is a whole lot easier than dealing with the issue sometimes. I think that's what's going on with Jonah. I think he's exhausted. I think he's indulging in escapism. And here's another thing, reason why actually it's not that odd that he's asleep. It's because the devil wants him there. Matthew Henry put it like this: He said, It is the policy of Satan when by his temptation he's drawn men from God and their duty to rock them asleep in carnal security that they may not be sensible of their misery and danger. He says the devil wants to keep you in a place where you are totally (coughs) feeling safe even though you're not safe. So you see these Contrasting reactions. On the one hand, you've got the sailors doing all the right things, right? But without true knowledge of God because their hearts are darkened. They, they worship idols and they don't know the living God. On the other hand, you've got Jonah who knows all the right things, but his will is trapped. He can't move his will towards repentance and obedience. So he, he's sunken into this deep sleep. And it is such an indictment of him that when you see what it takes to finally arrest Jonah's attention and bring him back to facing reality, you see these three things happen. First of all, that he's provoked by the captain. In verse 6, the captain says, what do you mean you sleeper? He just can't. Believe, he doesn't know Jonah. it's Jonah's fault, but he just can't believe that somebody could be passing away the hours asleep in the midst of this storm. I, I don't know what that might relate to in your life, but God will use any and every means to provoke you to wake up. It may not even be the voice of a Christian or of me or anyone. It can be anything. God will provoke you. And then he expo- he's exposed in his sin. Because in verse 7, what do they do? The sailors get together and they decide to use this way they understood that the gods would reveal what was going on if they cast lots. So it takes a provocation from the captain and then the casting of lots to expose Jonah's guilt. He has to be forcibly brought into the light. Not willingly, but kicking and screaming. And then lastly, they he has to be interrogated. I mean, these guys have to get him sitting him down, look him in the eye, and they start pummeling him with questions when the lot falls on him. They ask him like five different questions here. On whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? They're desperate to know the answers. Such an indictment of Jonah that it takes all of this powerful, forceful pressure upon him to finally bring him to the point where he's like, okay, it's me. Friend, it's so much easier when you just go willingly. God will do this to you. It's so much easier when you just recognize, oh, I know exactly what's wrong. I know exactly when it went wrong. And I know exactly how to put things right. It's far better you do that willingly. Here's the last response. It's decision time. Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It seems to me that this is the moment of Jonah's turn in this book. He's still going to go through some pretty Flaky moments in the rest of the book. He's not a perfect man by any means. But I think this is the beginning of his turnaround from his major backsliding and major rebellion because of what he confesses here. Everything he's done up to this point has been a denial of these things that he states here. Everything. He's a Hebrew. The Hebrews hate the sea. You ever notice that? They are not a seafaring people. They live by the sea, but they avoid it like the plague. It's associated with evil, with the sea monsters. You know, a lot of the poetry in the Bible talks about Leviathan and, and the, the monsters that live in the great deep. The sea is seen as a place of chaos, a place of darkness, a place that's out of control and that we need to avoid at all costs. Hebrews did not like the sea, they were land lovers. And Jonah is out at sea denying who he is, his heritage, his people, and running as far as he can, as we noted last week, from the presence of the Lord. He's in denial of, of his identity. And when you run away from your identity for a while, eventually you feel a gaping, chasmic hole in the center of your soul. Rosemary Nixon put it like this. In being unable or unwilling to talk, to, to own our God, we become unable to know or own our lives and identities. If you're a Christian, in other words, do you know that that's the most important thing about you? So when you're, by your actions or your lifestyle, you're denying it, Then you realize that you're cutting out the deepest part of your soul and denying who you are? You can't be happy when that's going on. So eventually he gets to this point and he just has to buckle. This is the turning point in the book for me. And as you know, it doesn't get better at this point. It actually gets a heck of a lot worse for him, as we're going to find out next week, in case you don't know what happens. But it's like, it's like have you ever had a really bad boil? You ever seen, boils are incredibly painful things. They, they build up with pressure as pus, the white cells and blood, compact and pressurize. And they get swollen and red. And they build up and build up to it little head. And then eventually, I'm trying to gross you out. It's my purpose and intention, right? Eventually, you either bur- it bursts naturally or you get a doctor to lance it with, not with a spear, but with something smaller. <laughs> and as it bursts, the pain is unbearable. But it's the only way that it makes way to healing. I think that's kind of what's going on with Jonah here. The tension in his soul has built where he's just In constant pain, and this confession is like the bursting of the boil. Actually, things get a lot worse for him in a few moments because they're going to chuck him overboard and he's going to drown. But at this point, this is the beginning of his turnaround. Sometimes that's what it's like to to be made right with God. It gets a little bit worse to begin with because you've got to dig painfully, dig around, repent, make change. Think about Zacchaeus, the story we heard about a couple months ago, how he he had to make restitution for his wrong. He'd been cheating people. So as he comes to Jesus and experiences Jesus' overwhelming love and forgiveness, he then says, I'm going to repay like four or fivefold the things I've taken, I've stolen from people. It's a lot of pain to come as he parts with all of his precious treasure. It's the same for you. When when God brings you to a point of, of just bowing before him, and saying, God, I've run out of myself. I, I don't want to run away from you anymore. He will at that point, you know, enable you and strengthen you. But you've still got some pain to come after that. And Jonah utters these three confessions. It reminded me of how the prodigal son, he's been running away. Just like Jonah. He runs away. And to begin with, it's like he's just... He's experiencing nothing but joy and ease as he spends all of his father's money that he's inherited. His life is a party, a non-stop party. He's got friends all around him. He drinks every night. He sleeps with prostitutes. His life is is completely hedonistic. And of course, it's all going fine until he runs out of money. It's like the point where he runs out of rope. And then he ends up destitute. And totally humiliated. And what does it say as Jesus tells a story of this son? It says, he came to his senses. It was like he he had this dawning realization. It was all fake. It was all pointless. It was all futile. And none of it lasted. And I was far better off, he says, back home with my father. That's where I had security. That's where I had peace. That's where my life made sense. It's where I was loved unconditionally, not just because I had all this cash. It's where I didn't have to feed the pigs. I had dignity. He came to his senses. And that's kind of like what happens with Jonah here. He kind of comes to his senses and he says these three confessions. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Which is to say, I belong to God's people. What am I doing out here in the sea? We hate the sea. I'm a Hebrew. that's the same for you when you say, I belong to the church. This is my family. You're all ugly, but you're my family. It's a (laughs) joke. I love you all. (laughs) He says, running is a denial of my identity. I'm a Hebrew. I need to go home. It may be painful for me to go home. It may be embarrassing for me to go home. I have to admit what I've been doing and the stupidity of running away. But he says, I'm a Hebrew. That's who I am. What am I doing out here with these pagan sailors? He says, secondly, I fear the Lord. For a while there, Jonah was more scared of obedience, and what it meant to face Nineveh. Pretty soon he realizes that God is a lot scarier than the Ninevites. And the fear of God begins to overwhelm him with a compelling power. I must obey. And then he admits this last thing. He says that the God I fear is the creator. Now that's a really, really important thing that he says here. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Because he's saying a couple of things. He's saying on the one hand, running away was the stupidest thing I ever did. How can you run from the God who made Everything. It's there in Psalm 135. He says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So you've been trying to run from God, and you know, what you have to realize pretty soon is you absolutely cannot. There's no way. He made you. He created you. He sovereignly put purpose and put you where you are. He arranges the circumstances of our lives. He knows them intimately. Don't think that anything around you is accidental. You can't run from him. But he's also saying this, that to run from him is a denial of what he made me for. If God is the creator, which is what Jonah is confessing here, Jonah is implicitly saying, he made me for a particular purpose. He made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. (laughs) It's Eric Little, if any of you don't know. (laughs) When God makes you for a purpose, you know you only experience liberty when you're running in the groove that he's carved out for you, right? And Jonah is experiencing nothing now except terror and anguish of soul. Because for all his running and trying to create his own identity and rule his own life, he has made a hash of it. And he needs to come back to this God who made him and recognise that submission to you, O oh God, is true freedom. When I stop questioning your will and say, I will I will obey, it's a decision. I don't care how much it costs me, I don't care how painful it's going to be in the short term. When I choose you, I know that I'm living for purpose and living In line with what I was made for. I want to read to you just a few verses from the book of Hosea. As we bring this to a close. Hosea chapter 6. God's words to an unrepentant people. Come. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us. That he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains. That water the earth. If you if you experience something of that tearing, or that bruising, or that parching feeling, because you've been running from God, understand that when you come back to Him, He heals, He binds up, and He sends the spring rains to water the earth. All that you must do is come back to Jesus, our Savior, our friend, our all-sufficient high priest, who in his grace took all of your sin upon himself, that he might give you life, and he will plead your case before the Father. He wants you to come back to him.